You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four chapters real quickly. Uh, the subject of the message today is the, the dismantling of the American male and the possible loss of the next major war. A very serious subject on, uh, on Father's Day. And so I want you to be, um, be very attentive. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now look at Genesis 2, beginning at verse 20. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife. They will become one flesh The man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. Now chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. (laughs) You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now turn to four, Genesis four, verse one. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought 
forth a man. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give you all the glory. And Lord, I ask you to cleanse me. Forgive me. Let me be a tool in your hand. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Again, let me read the title of the message, The Dismantling of the American Male, and we could say masculinity, and the possible loss of the next major war. Uh, this, uh, this quote here, I was telling our men in our men's class, this quote here kind of startled me, but I want you to listen closely. Michael Minahan is an Air Force general. He made this statement. He said, my gut tells me we will fight in, as a nation in 2025. The United States presidential elections in 2024 will offer President Ping, China's president, a distracted America. He went on to say Taiwan's presidential elections also in 2024 will offer President Ping and China a reason to attack this country. And he is a general in the United States Air Force. Boy, that's frightening, isn't it? I want to read just a few stories and a few illustrations maybe to begin to get a running start here. Because I believe there's things that you and I need to remember, first of all, about a dad. I read this. It said, a boy in London attended school for four years. His father was in prison because he could not pay their debts. This boy understood hunger. He got a job pasting labels to rat poison. He slept in the attic of an old building with two other vagabonds. He had so little confidence in his ability to write, he said, he slipped out in the middle of the night and mailed his first manuscript. Story after story was rejected. Finally, the day came when his manuscript was accepted. He didn't get one shilling, but an editor had praised him. He wrote that he wandered around aimlessly with tears rolling down his cheeks after his manuscript had finally been accepted. He wrote if it had not been for that one little bit of encouragement, he might have walked away from writing altogether. His name is Charles Dickens. She wrote, No matter who we are or where we come from, we all have our own journey. She said mine began one afternoon in 1953 in rural Mississippi, where I was conceived out of wedlock by Vernon and Vernita. Their one-time union that day, not at all romance, brought about an unwanted pregnancy. And my mother concealed her condition until the day that I was born. No one was prepared for my arrival. There were no baby showers, none of the anticipation or delight that I see in the faces of expectant friends who rub their swollen bellies and stomachs with reverence. My birth was marked by regret, hiding, and shame. She writes, and I thought this was something, she writes, I was sad that as I grew up as a little girl, that the people closest to me did not seem to realize what a sweet-spirited little girl I was, but I also felt strengthened seeing it for myself. 
Her name is Oprah Winfrey. I wrote like Dickens or Oprah, life can start out with a lot of enormous challenges, obstacles. Sometimes it can be poor parenting. Sometimes it can be no parenting at all. And we have to learn how to climb up, sometimes out of dysfunctional parenting, to be what God would have us to be. I went on to make this statement, a principle, poor parenting or poor parents cannot be your excuse forever. Sooner or later, a grown child must forgive, put their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and move on. You can't use poor parenting forever as an excuse to live a life that God would be ashamed of. But one writer said a dad is a critical component in that equation. What a dad believes about his children, he wrote, is critical to how they grow and they mature and they believe in themselves. Let me read that again, dad. What you believe about your children is critical to how they grow and mature and will believe in themselves. Dale Carnegie, who wrote a classic called How to Win Friends and Influence People, I told my kids I'd give them a $100 bill if they read this book through and understood it. But in this book, he titled one chapter, Give a Dog a Good Name. And it was taken from the old saying that means this, we respond to what others believe about us. And boy, there's nobody more important, nobody in your rooting section, your cheerleading section, that is more important, whether you realize it or not, than your dad. How you were raised, the influence of a dad. One writer, uh, a man wrote the five practices of highly resilient people. He said, listen to what he said in this book, The Five Practices of Highly Resilient People. He said, create a reverse bucket list. Do the things that scare you. He went on to say, doing something which rather than pleasurable may be painful, yet has the capacity to teach us and may in time be beneficial and possibly pleasurable later in our life. And when I read that, I thought to myself, that's a dad. You know, a dad's like a coach. He's pushing you toward excellence, and sometimes he has to do what moms don't like doing. A mom's not very good at it. A mom wants to protect. She wants a child's life to be pleasurable. A dad will sometimes push their sons and daughters through a certain level of pain because they realize the gain that will come from it. Kids need dads. I read a book, a man by the name of Tom Delry. He wrote a book called The Power of Potential. He made this statement. He said, when I would come home from college, he said, when I walked in the door, I knew my autistic brother was back in his room playing video games. Tom said it convicted him. It made him heavy-hearted. He would think about his own life, all the potential, all the future that he had. But then he would think about his autistic brother, and it weighed on him and weighed on him, and he wanted to do something about his brother. His dad, a businessman, had the same conviction. So one day his dad, 
who had been thinking how he could change the life of his autistic son, along with Tom, the brother of this autistic boy, they, they bought a car wash. It was, and they turned it into a car wash called Rising Tide Car Wash in Parkland, Florida. He said the car wash was struggling to survive. But they took that in order to build a future for their autistic, his autistic son and Tom's autistic brother. They turned that car wash into the largest producing car wash in the state of Florida and one of the largest in the United States. They wash over half a million cars a year. It has been featured on the Today Show, NBC Nightly News, in magazines, Entrepreneur, National Geographic, and Forbes magazine. And he went on, Tom went on to talk about his dad's conviction to ensure that his autistic son would have a life and have a future. And I thought, boy, that's a dad. I was reading Prince Harry's biography, a little bit of it. Princess Di, her son Harry. He's gotten a lot of attention. Listen to what Prince Harry said. He said, my mom, Princess Di, said there were three in her marriage, Charles, Di, and Camilla. Harry said this. Listen to what he said, Mom. Listen, Dad. Harry said she forgot William and I. And I wrote this down first. We can become so focused on our own life and our own pain, we forget the people in our life who really matter. Wow. Prince Harry said she forgot. When she said there are three in our marriage, she forgot. She was thanking Prince Charles, Camilla, and Princess Di. He said she forgot William and I. I wrote this down. Sometimes we can uh, focus on our life and our pain so much we forget the people who matter. Too many moms need to come home, drop their date life, and raise their children. In fact, Kevin Lehman said this. He said to a single mom, he said, stay single until your youngest child is 18 years of age. Focus on raising your children. But boy... And then in this last statement, the cord of three in marriage should only be dad, mom, and Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? You know, your marriage doesn't have room for nobody but you and Jesus and whoever your spouse is, your husband or your wife. And boy, that's so true, isn't it? You know, Kevin Lehman, who wrote a lot of books, he's a clinical psychologist, child psychologist. You know what he said? The greatest security of his children the greatest security to children is mom and dad who love each other. And he said, if you don't believe that, he said, do this. He said, mom, dad, wrap your arms around each other and hug each other in the kitchen. And he said, watch what little children will do. They'll start giggling, they'll start laughing, and the next thing they want to do is they want to work their way in the middle of that, that celebration, that hugging, that loving, because in that bond between a husband and wife, the strength of that marriage, they feel security. If you want to raise insecure children, you raise them in a home where they don't see that. Pope Francis said this. He said, a shepherd should smell like his sheep. 
I put on Facebook, a parent ought to smell a little bit like the kids. I remember sometimes when I'd not realize it, but raising four children, I'd have spit up on me and not even know it. It takes a long time to get a dad where he don't smell spit up any longer. But I went on, I was reading this uh, quote by Pope Francis. It was made by Admiral William H. McRaven in his book called The Wisdom of the Bullfrog. He was commenting on Pope's statement, on the Pope's statement, a shepherd should smell like his sheep. He said, while it's relatively a new saying, it mirrors the thinking of all great leaders of all time. If you lose touch with the men and women who work for you, if you can't relate to them because you spend too much time in the office or not enough time on the factory floor, if you don't smell like the people you are sworn to protect and lead, then you will be a poor leader who makes bad decisions. And I wrote down under Admiral McRaven's statement, there is so much truth to this, too many dads delegate the responsibility of parenting to the wife, to an older sibling, to the government, to the school, to the church. Dads need to be involved in the raising and the parenting of the children. In fact, Dad, let me tell you something. Let me let you in on a secret. When the judgment comes, and even the judgment seat of Christ. Every dad who's neglected the responsibility of seeing to the example and the upraising and the parenting of their children will be held accountable before holy God. And a man that brings children in the world and doesn't take care of them ought to be put in prison. He's a, he's a bum. He's a derelict. He's irresponsible. And that should carry a prison sentence. But you may think, well, you know, where's this sermon going? Because all of these statements, all of these illustrations are a picture of what a dad. A dad's an encourager. A dad's trying to figure out. My dad's 93 years old. He built my brother, who's severely autistic, built him a home and, uh, in a stone's throw from his house. And at 93 years of age, recently when he was in a hospital, what was important to him was to ensure that my brother would be taken care of should something happen to him. That's a dad. And you may say, well, when you look at Genesis, why did we read Genesis? Did you notice how Satan is marginalizing Adam? Did you notice that? Did you notice that there comes a point as you're moving through this narrative, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, that Satan is in a conversation with Eve, and it's as if Adam is oblivious, apathetic, indifferent. He's set off to the side. Here the man God had given the authority and the responsibility of his marriage, his home, and his parenting, his children, and yet here's Adam. He's neglecting all of that, and Eve's making all the decisions. And in chapter 4, have you noticed that there comes a point that Eve's celebrating the birth of Cain, but Adam is quiet? You don't hear anything from him. Why would Satan marginalize men? Why would masculinity today, it almost be a war on masculinity? Remember, James Dobson said this in bringing up boys. He said the public school system and most educational systems are no way equipped any longer to raise boys. 
He said, in fact, what we do now to tame boys and to bring them under control is we do what? We medicate them to ensure that they are not boys. In our educational system, used to, you had P.E., which was a physical activity. Then you had recess, playground. And, and by the time you got back in, you were wore out. We, we don't do a lot of that anymore, do we? But why would Satan go after the man? Number one, Satan is mindful of the role of husband and fathers. And will do all he can to marginalize and diminish the male in marriage and home and society itself. Why? Because man, you see by nature, let me give you an example. Uh, God's called me to provide for Sheila. Uh, God has called me to protect Sheila. Uh, Sheila is far more trusting than I am. Uh, she, 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 you can dupe her. I mean, we, like I said, we, it, it, the worst thing the world was ever go shop with, for a car or a truck was Sheila. He is so nice. He's the nicest salesman I've ever seen. He is really trying to help us. I think we can trust him. I would look at her like a hole in the head. I can't tell you how many times we'd be in such a situation like that and say, Sheila, come on, get up, let's go. And she wouldn't want to get up. What, what, what do we do? I said, come on, let's get up. He went and talked to his management while he's talking. Let's get out of here. You see, Satan knows that. He knows that a man by nature is protective. He, he's not necessarily trusting. He's trying to read another man, another woman, to ensure that his wife and his children are safe. It's his nature. If, if a threat comes to our home, I don't say, Sheila, get up. Go see what that noise is. Satan's second, uh, number two, Satan's ultimate goal is to completely rid the institution of marriage, family, and parenting of the male altogether. Why? Because of what we bring to the table. You know, it's been interesting to watch BLM. I don't like saying Black Lives Matter. Because I think what they did, they took a cliche and they made it what they wanted it to be. But it's a classic example of social ideology that is Marxist and feminist. In other words, Patrice Cullors, and you've heard me say this, who identifies as queer, is a strong LGBTQ advocate who purchased multiple properties and came under the scrutiny of the government, later admitted to hosting two parties at a mansion purchased by BLM funds for $6 million. And then when you look at these others and you look at the organization itself, it is feminist at the core. In other words, in the original website of Black Lives Matter, in the original website, there was no reference to men, to male, to masculinity, to anything. In fact, if you go to BLM and you go to their website, the, cover, the article right now says her story. And rather than history, it says H-E-R-S-T-O-R-Y. Why? Because whether you're black or white, Hispanic or Asian, there is a battle against the male in our society. It's the world that we're living in. So masculinity is in trouble. Let me give you some stats, because we'll be on this for a couple of weeks. First of all, are men in trouble? You better believe it. Are your sons in trouble? Yes. Uh, first of all, just their health. 
Listen to this. The health of the average male in America is in trouble. 350,000 men die of cardiovascular disease each year. That's the CDC. More than 700,000 men are diagnosed with cancer each year. 300,000 of those cases will result in death. That's the Men's Health Resource Center. 230,000 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer every year. Have you ever noticed we're wearing pink in the NFL, but we're not addressing prostate cancer at all? More than 60% of American, adult American men are overweight or ob, uh, obese. That's the National Institute of Health. 60% of adult men are overweight or obese. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, CDC, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, only 28.3% of men met the 2018 Federal Physical Activity Guidelines for aerobic and muscle strengthening activity. In other words, three-fourths of the men in this country, absolutely, they can't even run a mile. 13.1% smoke. 20 and over, 51.9% are presently taking high blood pressure medications or antihypertensive medications. Heart disease and cancer are the leading cause of men due primarily to lifestyle choices. On the average, men die 3.7 years earlier than women. Men, and hey, listen, that's changing too. Women are beginning because of your lifestyles. You're also beginning to see cancer and cardiovascular problems just like men, so that's shrinking. Men go to the doctor less than women. Men are three times more likely to die from suicide. In fact, this past week we were made, our hearts were made heavy by Ray Lewis, a Hall of Famer for the NFL, one of the strongest Christian voices in all the National Football League. His 28-year-old son, Ray Lewis III, died naked of drug overdose. I wrote this down. Have you ever noticed, for those who read the Bible through yearly, how much God emphasized the kosher diet of the Jew? Satan tempts even in the garden with diet. Daniel and his friends with diet. And Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 with diet. Satan doesn't care how he takes men out just as long as he does. Three-fourths of the men in this country couldn't fight a war because we are in such bad shape. Some of the men in this room and some of you are listening will never see your children to adulthood. You will never see your children marry. You will never see your grandchildren. You'll never reach retirement because you can't say no. And boy, Satan loves it. Much of the above stats are reflective of a loss of discipline. Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist, made this statement. He said to men and women, he said, don't try to change the world until you first learn to make your bed, make your bed and clean up your room. He's talking about the lack of discipline. And again, it comes back to the question, why would Satan spend so much time undermining the role of men in marriage, family, parenting, and society? Why would Satan work so hard against men? Because everybody, listen. If a man comes to church, if a dad comes to church, there is a 93% chance that his wife and his children will come to church and be saved. 
If a man does not come to church, it drops it down in the 20-something percent. And if the children come without mom and dad, down in the teens. Why do you think Satan would go after men? Why would he attack masculinity? Second, it's the cost of the family. Warren Wiersbe made this statement. He said, Satan seeks to reverse the headship in the home. In fact, real quickly from Genesis, two passages. Go over in the New Testament to 1 uh, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This, this uh, may make the ladies mad, but, uh, and people don't like it. And people say it's old-fashioned. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, uh, Therese, if I remember one time you said Paul, kind of irritated you a little bit, got under your skin. You may want to just step outside and drink some coffee. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, and a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. Now that may make you mad, you may think that's old-fashioned, but my friend, God always establishes every institution with chains of, of responsibility, chains of authority, chains of responsibility, chains of accountability, Right? God's not being mean. In fact, take, take, a, uh, take a left, go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, just in case a, a man takes this and he goes, well, now you, <laughs> things are going to change around here. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, well, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I had an aunt one time that called my mom and told her what she needed to do. You need to have your own bank account. You need some things in your own name. And so mom, mom sat down and said, uh, you know, said so-and-so told me that, I, that I need, we need to change some things up here, uh, that, uh, you, know, I, you know, I need to have some things in my own name and all this stuff. And my dad looked at and said, that, that's crazy. He said, we have a joint checking account. Everything that's in my name is in your name. 
In fact, the truth of the matter, he looked at my mom and said, you could empty the checking account out. You could write yourself a check and hightail it out and go to the Bahamas if you wanted to. He said, everything we have is in our names together. He said, you don't have to listen to that and you don't have to do that. Let me tell you, ladies, this is not a lack of accountability. This is not a lack of respect. I have an enormous amount of respect for my wife. Being married to her for over 45 years, let me tell you, I seldom ever would ever do anything without her input, her wisdom, and her counsel. She is an exceptional woman. She is very good at the role of being a wife and mother, and I'm not. God has called me to a role. God's called to a role, and he brings those roles together. And one thing that she'll let me be, she'll let me be the man. Some wives don't let their husband be a man. That's just the bottom line. Everything God does, he follows a system of order. He sets up channels of authority and responsibility and accountability. That's what he does. And I wrote down here today, the patriarchal system of the Bible is under attack. What is the patriarchal system? What is that? It's a father-led home. Do you know that the Bible, the Bible set up a patriarchal system? In other words, the, it's a father-led home. It doesn't discount or diminish the role of wives and mothers. Boy, it's really quiet in here. And let me tell you, I'm going to let you go in about five minutes. But I can tell you this much. At the rate we're going in our culture and our society... If we go to war in the shape that we're in right now, in the marriage, in the home, in the family, in parenting, and most of all in men, then I worry about the future of this country. I wrote this down. Men, we are in a time like no other. I believe there is a level of evil that right now seeks to dismantle the United States of America. And I would remind you, for those that have not traveled the world, I would remind you that America's benevolence, our giving, is equal to the rest of the world combined. Did you hear that? We have an enemy that not only would take out the man, not only remove masculinity, but we have an enemy that would love to remove the United States as we are today from the world. Why? Because we give more away than all the nations of the world combined. Why? Because when bully, tyrannical governments, Marxist leaders come to power, usually they face at some point the United States. There's a lot hanging in the years that are coming. But I went on to make this, uh, looking at this, again, the Air Force General who warned, as many are warning us right now, that we are on the brink of a world war that we are not prepared for. In fact, men and boys stand. Let me, let me get you to stand. Ladies and girls, you stay seated. Men, I, I, I want to do this, and then we're going to pray. I want you to repeat after me. 
This is, um, this is Psalm 27. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a portion and then you repeat it. And I want you to repeat it. I want you to stand up, put your shoulders back like you're in a formation. And I want you to repeat it like a man. I want you to man up. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil, man, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Ladies, stand to. I may not live to see it, but there may come a day when you will remember those words and you will quote them. Let me say this. A moment I will never forget. When I was a teenager, a call came about 5, 5.30 in the morning. My grandfather, my grandfather had died. And so my dad and I, we got in that old 1962 Ford pickup. And we're making our way around the gravel roads. And my dad's a strong man, even at 93. And my dad was just crying. And i never forget in that moment how helpless I felt when he looked at me and he cried and he sobbed and he said, Jeff, my daddy is dead. And when he said, my daddy is dead, he looked at me 
And he looked like this engineer of NASA, this brilliant mind who helped put a flag on the moon. This brilliant mind in that moment looked like a little bitty boy. And he was looking at me like he was lost. Man, you better hear me. You better get your act together. You better get your health back. You better get your homes in order. You better get your finances in order. And for you, for you lazy people that are staying at home right now, you, you men better get your act together. Because if this nation goes to war, your family can't afford to, for you to be out of shape, sick, your finances and your life be in such a miserable shape that you fail to provide the leadership they'll need in that moment. I hope I'm wrong. But if I'm not, man, you need to be the men that God's called you to be. And it starts right here. Starts in this community. Starts in this city. Came here because our power was out. Working on my sermon yesterday. Sitting there while I'm working on my sermon, it sounds like in the parking lot. Pow, 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 pow. People running lights. People running stop signs spinning their tires, living in just absolute bedlam. There are forces right now in this nation that are literally creating racial conflict and are dismantling this nation and removing a trust of law enforcement. They are working in every way possible to dismantle and destabilize this country because you can mark my word, there is a threat in the future. And men, we have to be what God's called us to be. We don't have time to dabble in pornography. We don't have time to dabble with alcohol. We don't have time to dabble in drugs. We don't have time to suck on cigarettes and ruin our health. We don't have time to get called up in over-the-counter drugs. We don't have time to do anything but get in the Word of God in prayer and be the leader that God has called us to be. And all God's men said, Ladies, join with us. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to You. And Lord, I know maybe this sermon has seemed kind of detached and fragmented. But Lord, like one of the old prophets in the Old Testament, dear Lord, I find myself now not so much pastoral as prophetic. And prophets were always sent to warn the nation of Israel and to warn a world of conflict and war and difficulties that would come and how important it was for the people of God to walk with you. I thought to myself, even as we went without power, I thought about those balloons flying over this country, possibly mapping out our grid. I hear the voices of generals in our military saying we need to get ready. I thought about, I looked at Sheila, what would it be like for somebody to knock out the electrical grid of this, of this nation, to bring our technology to a standstill, and all of a sudden phones not working right, all of a sudden things begin to break down. And I thought about how important it would be for this country to be united, to be able to say to whatever enemy we may face, to whatever enemy we may face, you may take us, but the cost will be enormously great. God, we pray that you raise up leaders 
men who cannot be caught, who cannot be bought, women of principle and integrity, men and women that will lead this city, these communities, this state, this nation, this world in a moral and ethical, Christ-like way. And Lord, I pray today, if you've spoken to a man here, he's not saved. Spoken to a man or a woman, young person. They're not a Christian. They don't know today if they died where they'd spend eternity. I pray that, Lord, you'd speak to their heart. And in childlike faith, they would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart. Save me. Pray, dear Lord, for those that may need to come and recommit, rededicate. Some who may need to just spend the time in the altar, at the altar, and to say, Lord, help me to be a better man, a better woman, a better young person. God, help us to walk closer to you than we've ever been before. So that when one day those words that we read a moment ago in that psalm would be the testimony and the backbone of our life, And we would be those kind of men and women. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.